How many of you do push-ups? How many of you go running? How many of you go swimming? How many of you exercise? When you first started doing a push-up, how many could you do? Two, three, four, twenty? It, it takes time to build your strength. Each few days you do a few exercises, you soar, but you, you recover. We spend a lot of time, uh, especially after uh, New Year's, with New Year's resolutions, to work on physical exercise. But our series for the next three months, as we're halfway through, well, almost, is about developing spiritual exercises. We've talked about prayer, we've talked about um, study, meditation, solitude, fasting, and today's simplicity. And these aren't easy to do because they're exercises. They're disciplines. We start and we see how we go. But we keep doing it as a life habit because our spirit is more important than our bodies. You know, Jesus lived a focused spiritual life. His life was centered on God, the Father. And he dedicated his earthly life to follow and fulfill the will of the Father. In fact, the will and purpose of God and of Jesus was the same, perfectly aligned, forever in harmony. You know, Jesus in Matthew and John 5.30 said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know, when Jesus had spent about 30 years living in Nazareth with his family, it was time to begin his ministry to save us. And he left his family in Nazareth. He left his livelihood. He left his immediate community. And he chose to depend exclusively and solely on the Father for everything. He didn't start his ministry with a support team of friends and colleagues. He did not have a paycheck. There was no job that we paid for. He didn't have the security that we normally would expect or want or need in this situation. What he did, what he had, was the Father. Now our passage today is drawn from a section of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7, which is known as the Summer on the Mount. This is a period of time when Jesus taught about who is God, the nature of God's law, and how we must live our lives before God. And the thing about it is these are not theoretical lessons. These weren't good ideas or theory. They demonstrated how Jesus actually lived his life. It was his call to us to follow him into the life that only he can provide for us. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus practicing the spiritual disciplines. In fact, we learn from him what they are. He's the one who set out the spiritual exercises of life. And we're the ones who need to follow and imitate him in his power. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus, that he prayed, he fasted, he meditated. He spent time in God's word as being the God's word. He also relied exclusively on the Father. He spent time in solitude, and he lived a life of simplicity. In Matthew 4, when Jesus faced a temptation from the enemy, Jesus fasted, 
and he was in solitude. And he overcame the enemy by God's word. He overcame the enemy by relying on the Father and by living the spiritual disciplines. Something he calls us to do. He didn't rely on his own divine nature. He set that aside. And in complete dependence upon the Father, he rested and depended on God to provide everything he needed. When he entered ministry, and as we see this beginning in Matthew 5, he began to preach, teach, heal, and call people to God through himself as he died and rose for us. And throughout this whole experience of his life existence, he practiced these spiritual habits. He is the author of them. And despite the needs, despite the challenges, despite all the things going on around him, he continued to practice these disciplines, including the lifelong practice of simplicity, which is our topic today. This is a life habit that at first glance may seem a bit confusing. We talk about prayer. Okay, I understand what prayer is. We talk about uh, solitude, getting away from things. I like that idea. Studying God's word, meditating. But what is simplicity? Why is it a discipline? What does simplicity mean? Well, my friend Dallas Willard, who I always refer to, he describes simplicity as this. It's the arrangement of life around a few consistent purposes, explicitly excluding what is not necessary to human well-being. This is written by a theologian. That's why it sounds a bit confusing. So, in other words, simplicity really means focusing your heart. It means living your life spiritually, faithfully centered on what God, our Father, considers is the most important purpose of life. It's about centering your life on what God values, what he considers important. So this morning, we're going to do an exercise. This morning, we're going to ask God what he considers to be the most important and central purpose of life. And the good news is that uh, he doesn't let us guess. He tells us. Jesus himself explains to us in Matthew 6, 24 to 34, what is simplicity? What does it mean? And how can we live it? So our question today is we're going to come to Jesus. And we're saying, Lord, how can we focus our lives on God and become more like you, Jesus, through following your practice of simplicity? That's our objective, to imitate and to be like Jesus, not in our own strength, but in God's strength filling us to give us that capacity. So let's just pray for a moment before we continue. Jesus, we invite you this morning to come. And like the crowd who sat on the hillside and listened to you in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to hear, we come to learn, Lord. We want to live in the ways that you want us to live. Jesus, please help us to understand Please give us a desire to to obey you. Please guide us and show us how we should live in simplicity. And we thank you, Father, that your desire is to transform us to be like your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would come and teach us, Lord, as we continue to look at your word. Amen. So our passage for today, we're looking at how Jesus lived a life of simplicity. But the first verse that Robert read for us this morning 
in verse 25 is therefore. Therefore. And that points us back to something earlier. And so to begin our time, we have to actually look at verses 19 to 24 to see what Jesus is talking about and laying the foundation for him to say, well, therefore, based upon what I've said previously, this is what you should be doing or not doing. And so it points us back to verse 19. Do not store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break up and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. So Jesus provides in this short passage two principles. And he builds what he's going to say about not worrying and seeking God on these two principles. And the first one is that your life revolves around what you value. What do you value in life? That's where your life revolves around. It's where your heart is. What we value in treasure reflects what we believe and on what we're willing to spend our lives on. It's easy to say what we believe, what we value, but our, our actions, how we spend our resources, spend our time, that really reflects what's most value to us. So how can we know what we really treasure? Well, it's what we hold most precious and what holds our attention. It's what we live for. You know, he says, uh, he mentions the eye is the lamp of the body. What you see, what you look at, what you give attention to, what you focus on, that tells you what you value. And that's different for everybody. Each of us has things that we value. And if your eye is healthy, if what you look at is good, then so will be inside. Your life will be full of light and not darkness. And this leads to the second principle he talks about in verse 24. You cannot choose to serve. You can only choose to serve one master. You, you can't choose to serve God and riches. No one can serve two masters, he says. Now remember, you know, Jesus is on a hillside and people are gathering around, sitting on the grass, standing, listening. And he's telling them this. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and riches. You have to make a choice of who you're going to serve. Now, interestingly, we know today from neuroscience, the study of the brain, how we think, that people really cannot multitask. We can have lots of ideas, lots of tasks around us, but we can really only focus our attention, conscious, mindful attention, on one task at a time. That's why you shouldn't text and drive. Talk on the cell phone and drive. We, we can't do it. We think we can, but really our mind is focused on one, only one activity at a time. Because we're, not bio, we're, we're biologically wired, biologically, to pay attention to only one thing at a time. So it's either God or it's riches. What we treasure is what we pay attention to. What we pay attention to, we serve. Ultimately, we direct our lives around whatever we value the most. What we treasure the most boils down to either God or riches. 
which is in a sense either God or ourselves. Often we can value ourselves when we value God. We don't think about it consciously, but we look at our time, how we spend our time, what we do, what we say, and it's reflected in what we value. So these two principles, where your treasure is will be your heart, and you can only choose one master. This forms the background for the next section that we're going to talk about, what Jesus talks about. It puts it in context for us because simplicity boils down to a choice. Simplicity is what we choose to do in spending our lives. The spiritual habit of simplicity begins with what we see, what we look at. This is found in verses 25 to 32. We all experience times of anxiety and worry in our lives. In fact, right now you could be worried. You'd be sitting here anxious about things that are, are affecting your life. When Jesus said to the crowd, do not worry about your life, many in the audience had very good reason to worry. They were poor. They possessed almost nothing. They were in need, they were hurt, they were ill, depressed, they were broken in life. That's why they came to Jesus. And when they looked at Jesus, they saw someone who led a simple existence. Jesus had no home. He had no wealth. He had no political influence. And when Jesus said to them, don't worry about your life, people could see that this was teaching born from his experience. And so they listened to him, just as we listen to him today and right now. And in describing this concept of don't worry, Jesus provides two descriptions. The first one he describes is our inner physical needs. You know, when you talk about um, to somebody who's really destitute, their concern is, what am I going to eat today? What am I going to wear? Jesus could have added as well, where am I going to sleep tonight? Especially in a cold winter. These were things that were concerning people, life needs. In his first description for us, he talks about food and drink. He says in verses 25 and 26, I I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And he turns and he says, let's look at the birds. You know, this morning we were praying before the service, I could hear the birds outside chirping away. And I thought, you know, these birds wake up in the morning and they don't wake up and say, man, what are we going to eat today? We're going to find food. It doesn't, doesn't cross their minds because they're not designed that way. But God always provides for them. Now, I'm sure there was some in the audience who heard Jesus say this, and they turned to somebody next to them and they say, yeah, don't worry about life. Don't worry about food. Yeah, that's easy to say, isn't it? I have to eat today and there's no food and no prospect of food. I have no work So uh, it's easy to say, don't worry. We all like to hear these verses. Don't worry. Yeah, I like that. But how? How do I not worry? Especially when my life and my future is on the line. What do I do? And so, of course, Jesus points to the birds. And he also points to the fact that 
Worrying doesn't do you any good anyway. It doesn't help. You know, how many of you have actually, myself included, have actually worried about something that never happened? Oh, if this happens tomorrow, I'm just going to do this, this. And tomorrow comes and it never happened. So I worried for nothing. I was all worked up. I was all stressed out. And it was not necessary. Because what I worried, what I feared the most, never happened. Now the first description he gives about food and birds and not worrying, the fact that it doesn't help you and in fact it can even shorten your life with stress, he turns us to his second. And that is about external needs, clothes. And that may seem kind of strange. Why, why would he say life consists more of clothes? I mean, unless you're, you're trying to buy your kids back to school clothes and there's a big debate about what you're going to wear this year, we don't think about clothes too much. Not generally. But in this crowd he was speaking to, they did. And I thought about this and I thought, why? Why, Lord, would clothing be such an important aspect to mention about life? And I was reminded of the Old Testament. We all need clothing to protect us from cold and from the heat. If it's too hot, we get sunburned. But it's the idea of a cloak. You wear an outer cloak, a garment that you put around your shoulders. This cloak kept you warm. It was also your bed at night. It was your blanket where you slept on it. You rolled it up as a pillow. This was an important part of your wardrobe. And in Deuteronomy, taking it right back to the Old Testament, people would give their cloak as a pledge to somebody. I will pay you back. I will do this for you. Here's my most valuable possession, my cloak. I'm giving it to you. And God says, when the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. And Jesus is saying, life is more than your most valuable clothing. What you need absolutely to keep warm and what you need absolutely to keep safe from the environment around you. So clothing was essential. And when Jesus said, don't worry about this, he was speaking to an audience who understood exactly what he meant. As with food, Jesus illustrates his point by directing his people's attention to their surroundings. So he says, clothing, you have a cloak. Well, look what God has done. God has clothed the flowers. One one, you know, people would say the flower referring to as a lily. But look at a lily, a simple flower. There are many varieties of lilies. They're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And God clothes the lilies with beauty that we can recognize. And Jesus says, you know, the most wealthiest, wisest king who ever Israel ever had couldn't hold a candle to a flower that I have clothed. All his wealth, all his power, the gold, the finest clothes, it was nothing in comparison to what I do every day for the grass, for the flowers in the field. Even weeds, even grass, is considered to be clothed by God and of value. You know, most of us, when we see a weed in our lawn, get it out of there. It's in the way of my nice green grass. 
Let's get rid of it. But when you look at a weed and just look at it, and there's different types of weeds and the way they flower, God clothes those. And he says, you know, these things you pull out and toss in the recycle bin for organic recall or throw them in fire, you know, you treat them as nothing, and yet I clothe them with beauty. And here's why he's saying that. Because what you consider as unvaluable, as unworthy, that you step on, I value you more than that. You know, it uh, reminds me of a, a short study we're going through and fully devoted, and one of the illustrations of, uh, of gifts was that, uh, imagine if I came to you and said, for a few bottle caps, I'll give you the Coca-Cola company. You would take that deal any day. A few bottle caps for the Coca-Cola company? Yeah. God values you much more than bottle caps. He takes care of everything we have and need. We are more valuable to him. And it's a simple lesson. It's what we see in life. Either we see our worry and anguish or we see the one who takes care of us. It's a choice. Simplicity is a choice. The pathway for spiritual discipline and simplicity begins with understanding that the Father not only cares for you, but he supplies the essentials of life. You need not worry because you can see, you believe, you trust that the Father knows what you need in verse 32. For the pagans, those who don't believe, run after these things, but your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows what you need, each one of us. And so we begin the spiritual disciplines of simplicity by seeing, by understanding that God knows and supplies our need. But the spiritual habit of simplicity is more than just knowing this. Like I said, it's easy to say, don't worry. But how are you supposed to do that? Well, simplicity is shaped by surrendering. That's our second point for this morning. This is how we respond to what we see of God's supply. We have to begin to grasp God's perspective and how he views us. And out of this, in verse 26, verse 30, and verse 32, I see three truths of a life of simplicity. The Father values you. You may not believe it. You may want to believe it. But it's true. As you seek him, as you follow him, as you know him, he values you. The Father provides and cares for you. That's the second truth of simplicity. And you'll see in a minute where this is going. So he values you, and he provides and cares for you. We surrender our anxiety and our worry to him because we know that he cares for us. We know that he values. That's why I can surrender my concerns to him. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a very interesting three verses I want to read to you. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from city to city to village, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 disciples were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, 
the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others were contributing to their support out of their private means. The Father was supplying the needs of Jesus and his disciples through other people. Where did Jesus sleep at night? He had no home. Invitations outside. God always provided a place for him. He provided the place for his disciples. He provided the food and the drink they had through other people. Because the Father knows your needs. He knows what you need. It's not like he goes, oh, I didn't know you needed that. No, he sees what you need, what you truly need, not what you think you need. What we think we need and what we really need sometimes are very different. We confuse our wants and our needs sometimes, and we don't realize that. In fact, several years ago, I'll just throw this story in, we had a, a student who was at the university, and she came to the front desk, we're talking about things, and she expressed anxiety about the economy. 20 years old, I'm worried about the economy. And we talked about this and uh, briefly, and, and she said, you know, I, 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 I buy things because I'm worth it. And I thought she was making a joke. So I realized, no, that's what she really believed. She had seen the commercials, and they had said, because you're worth it, you should go and get it. And that's what she was doing. And then she was worried about the economy. Well, you can wonder why. So we talked a bit about this, and I said, well, you know, that's your want, not your need. And she stopped, and she, like, no one ever told her that before. And the next day when she came to school, she said to me, look, I brought my lunch. I didn't buy it today. (laughs) We all have different needs, and God knows each one. If you believe what Jesus says is true, you know, if you really believe that, uh, that God knows all and is willing to take care of us, then we can surrender your worries to God by resting in his provision. But again, how do we surrender? How do we develop a lifestyle of dependence and trust? It's a discipline. It's one step at a time as you practice. You know, somebody could be sitting here saying, you know, yep, I agree. I know God takes care of me. I believe God provides for me, but I still worry. I'm still overwhelmed by everything in my life. So how do I not worry? And this becomes the key point for our discipline of simplicity. As we turn away from the focus on ourselves and we turn the focus on something else, upon God. Even if your worry is for your children, for your families, it's still your worry. And our anxiety is still focused on either needs God has already provided for or needs that we have no way of providing for ourselves. Surrendering means turning from ourselves and turning our attention to Christ. Simplicity involves knowing that God provides and then surrendering our worries by focusing on him. And that's basically the whole point of this passage. Jesus spends most of the time saying don't worry and why you shouldn't and then tells us how not to worry. Developing a spiritual habit of simplicity is focusing on Christ. And simply stated, the practice of simplicity is seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. 
It's about simplifying your life so you can focus on what is essential. Most of us, myself included, have so many things going on. You know, I, I, I talk to people sometimes, and um, they say, I would love to spend time with God each day in the Word, but I don't have any time. I have to get up, the kids have to go to, to daycare, I've got to go to work, I've got to home, make dinner, I'm exhausted, I don't have any time. Well, you don't have time because you're valuing things other than God. Now, don't take, don't, don't take me the wrong way. I'm not accusing people of saying, you know, what, your lives are busy. It's not my point to do that. My point is to direct us to, to God and what he wants and what he knows is best for you. When you seek after God's interests, trust in his provision, then, then and only then does worry and anxiety melt away. So when you look up from your problems towards God. And I know what it sounds like. It sounds like, eh, never work. But it does. It's how we search what we choose to spend our lives on. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom. God's kingdom is simply where God's will is realized. Wherever God's will is active, that's his kingdom. If his kingdom is in your heart, it means you're seeking after his will. And in Matthew 13, to 46, you know the stories. The man who sold everything for the field that had the treasure. The man who sold everything for the pearl because it was a great value. Because the kingdom of God is worth more than anything you can possibly imagine. Jesus also says to seek God's righteousness. God's righteousness is really his will, his kingdom, being obeyed. Doing what is right in his sight. When we perfectly follow all of God's will, then we are righteous. But we're sinners. We are by nature disobedient to God's ways, and so we must receive his righteousness through faith and surrender to Jesus. It is in this state of received righteousness that we can pursue obedience. You know, I like the way that that Paul talks about this uh, in Philippians 3, 7 to 16. I won't read you all the verses. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Paul says, in looking over my life, whatever gains I had, whatever value was in my life, I threw it away. In fact, he says, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes and is found through Christ, a righteousness based upon faith. When we seek after God's kingdom and righteousness, we're seeking after it in Christ, in faith. And then Paul adds this way. He adds this to the end of this section. He says, not that I've already obtained all of this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And I keep pressing on. That's a spiritual discipline. That's a spiritual exercise. He keeps living the belief of seeking God's righteousness every day, in every way. Because Paul lived a focused life, centered on God's kingdom, centered on God's righteousness. And Paul tells us that he presses on, that he actually seeks continually. The word here means a continual process of seeking. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Keep seeking. It's not once and for all. 
You know, when you came to faith, when you first believed in Jesus, that was done. You're saved. You're forgiven. God declares you righteous. But living out that in this life is a process. It's not done right away. It's a process of how we move from place to place. And so we're to seek things continually. In Luke 10, when Martha and Mary first had Jesus visit their home, Martha's running around making all the provisions. And she came to Jesus and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? She was worrying. And what did Jesus say to to Martha? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, good things, getting dinner ready, getting everything set for us. But, But few things are needed. Indeed, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is the better that we're taking from her. Because Mary just spent time with Jesus. She just sat at his feet while Martha Martha ran around. And Jesus says, I am what's most important. I am the need. I am what you're supposed to focus upon. He is the false expression of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so we focus as we try and live out this through recognizing that gifts come from God they're not our possession. And I'll put it this way. What if I said, every day I'm going to give you a daily gift card for food? Would you worry about food? No, you have to take the gift card and use it for food. But you have to use it each day. God cares for us. He protects and provides. How do you know he does this, how he values us? Because of the cross. He's already gone to the cross for us and demonstrated his love. A life of simplicity also means not holding on your possessions, but giving the gifts that God has given you away freely. It's the outward expression of the inward reality of focusing on him and not on our possessions. It's easier to give something when it's not yours to give. And it's also easier to give something when you've been given it to pass on to somebody. You know, Richard Foster in his book that some of you are reading says the inward reality of simplicity involves a, a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. Neither the greedy nor the miserly know this liberty. It has nothing to do with abundance. It is an inward spirit of trust. So, how do we put this all together to make use of it? How do we form the habit of living simplicity in simplicity? Well, I remind you, simplicity is about learning how to narrow the focus of your life to the essential purpose of seeking God and his righteousness, seeking his will. And you know it like this, because as I was telling somebody, the hardest, one of the hardest parts about preaching passages is that God puts you through them. He puts you through the same experiences you're trying to preach on. Otherwise, it would just be theory. Whenever I begin to find myself worrying, uh uh-oh, warning sign. I'm anxious about something. That's a warning. So what should I do? I should surrender myself to God. Father, you take care of this. In some ways, it's like this. I'm holding these worries in my life. And God says, just let go of them into his hands. 
then leave them there. Don't keep picking it up and looking at it, you know. Oh, yeah. As a worry, which I do, which I think we all do. But it's not enough. It's then turning away from that and seeking what God wants. And that becomes our focus. We focus on the Father's kingdom and his righteousness, on his will. We're thankful. Cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for giving me breakfast, giving me lunch. Some of you are thinking, when's this going to end? I'm getting kind of hungry now. Last week was fasting, and today we're waiting, you know, for God's provision. We're supposed to cultivate a heart of thankfulness to God, a faith, a heart of trust to say, God, you know, you've always met my needs. You've never let me down. I can trust you today because I know that you care for me because of who you are, not because of who I am. We ask God to fill our hearts and minds with the wisdom and ability to see our worries for what they are and then surrender them to God. Life of simplicity also means removing distractions in our lives. It's ordering our life around the essentials, not the non-essentials. And Foster in his book provides a number of concrete ways of doing this. He talks about the practice of simplicity, about choosing what we buy, rejecting anything that produces addiction in us. You know, if, if uh, you can't get through the day without a coffee... Maybe you should fast from coffee for a while. Maybe depending on coffee to get you, oh, I had a late night, I had no sleep, the kids were up all night, I need the coffee to stimulate you. Now it becomes a habit. That's all it is, it's a habit. Or maybe it's a certain TV show. I remember, I remember somebody telling me they were invited to somebody's home for dinner. They arrived to, their, to this person's house for dinner. It's a whole family. And they got their dinner on TV trays and they all sat around the TV and watched the special TV show. And he was struck by how I've been invited to dinner, but to dinner to watch a TV show, because you couldn't miss the TV show. It had become an addiction, a, a habit. It's not bad in itself, but if it's taking you away, if you're saying, I have no time for God, but I have time to watch whatever shows on TV, then something should, should be evaluated in your life. Developing the habit of giving things away and learning how to enjoy things without owning them or possessing them. In other words, it's about examining our lives to see what interferes or competes against a focus on God's kingdom and righteousness. That's what living a life of simplicity is. It's simplifying your life to the essentials, focused on God. Now, you may still be sitting here thinking, "Ah, it's not clear. Well, it's not clear to me either. I'm still working through this myself. I'm still learning to live a life of simplicity. What I think is simple and focus on God, I'm still learning about what that means and how to live that out. But we're to focus our attention on God's kingdom and his righteousness. And that's how we overcome anxiety and worry and how we develop being in a place where God can touch us. In a minute... I'll be praying and we'll have our closing song. But like all these exercises and disciplines, they involve us to make the small steps of day by day, applying them and putting them in application. 
And through simplicity, we learn how to depend and trust on God, to put ourselves in the place where God can meet us. As physical exercise makes the body strong, spiritual exercises make the spirit strong. And we can't, and that's the strength comes from being and residing in Him. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Jesus, we confess, I confess that it's, it's not easy, Lord, to, uh, to not worry. It's not easy to live a life of simplicity. It is not easy, Lord, to, to navigate through all the demands and complexities and responsibilities and obligations in our lives. But, Lord, you've told us that we're to seek after you, that we are to seek after your kingdom and your righteousness. And all the things that are essentials of life, you provide. You give us the freedom, Lord, to live for you. You give us the joy and security of knowing your provision, that it comes from your hand, Lord. Father, we surrender to you all the concerns we have, all the worries in our hearts right now. We put them in your hands, Lord, and we turn to you to worship you. In your name, Jesus, amen.